Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. I grew up in a very, you may not know this, uh, but I grew up in a very, very religious home back in Brooklyn. Um, and uh, from my youngest of years till maybe till I was about 11 or 12, you would catch the Santiago clan. It was me, four older sisters, mom and dad. You would catch us going to maybe at least, at least two Sunday services so you know elite Christianity. Uh, we would be at Sunday school. We would go to midweek services, uh, Wednesday night prayer meetings, and we would go to this little church called La Hermosa Iglesia Cristiana Pentecostal. Right? That's, that sounds so powerful. Really, all it means is the beautiful Pentecostal Christian church, right? And I know it sounds better in Spanish, La Hermosa, right? And while I can't remember exactly what was preached from uh, the pulpit, I do remember the kind of culture that we grew up in as members of that church. For instance, I remember uh, that uh, it was thought that it was a sin if a woman wore pants. You're all going to hell, right? Like every, everyone here is, everyone's going to hell, right? Like if you're, if you're a woman, you're in pants, you're all going to hell. It was interesting because women could preach, but they couldn't wear pants or makeup or sort of elaborate earrings. Because if they did, it would not only prove like, like you weren't just in the world, but you were of the world. That's how we, that's how we grew up. Uh, and men couldn't have long hair and forget about, like, tattoos. Like, you were going to the center of hell if you had tattoos or had any kind of alcohol. The world, the kind of church culture, the religious culture I grew up in, the world was irredeemable, right? It was headed straight to hell in a handbasket. And the goal of our lives was to get through life with sinning as little as possible, at least externally. That was the goal of our life. And eventually, if we didn't die, if Jesus came back, then the goal was just to eject from earth and go and be kind of I, sad ghosts somewhere happy. I'm not really sure what the vision was, but it wasn't to be here. And as a kid, I, it was traumatizing because I couldn't even watch the Smurfs because, you know, witchcraft. And I had to sneak behind my parents' back to watch the Simpsons because they were so disrespectful, all those things. And I just remember, and that's, that's what I can remember, but I just, uh, the, the feeling that I had growing up was one primarily of fear. I was scared of God. I was scared and I was taught that in order to be safe, in order to be accepted, in order to be approved of, I had to quote unquote be good. And more than that, I had to be seen as being good, right? I had to show off my goodness. Our whole lives were centered around being good, around being moral, around avoiding external sin and making sure that we remain separate from those who believed and behaved differently. If our, if our lives were a song, it would be set to the tune of performance, of religious performance. That was our life, not only to gain favor with God, but to gain favor with other people. And in essence, this is how we view religion, right? Religion is a set of beliefs and or patterns of living through which we can prove that we are enough, that I am enough. It's a set of beliefs and or patterns that prove that we are enough. And if we can believe those beliefs strong enough, or if we can practice those patterns of living consistently enough, then we can finally be enough. And it doesn't so much matter what shape or form your religion takes uh, shape, right? The point is that we use these sets of beliefs and or practices to prove and to try to fix ourselves. 
and to try to fix our world. And as humans, we've been doing this since day dot. There's just this impulse in us, in me, in you, to use our human capabilities, our strength, our wisdom uh, to attain goodness. And it doesn't matter. Listen, don't get it twisted. Every single person is religious. Everyone. Whether you're an atheist or a Christian, a Buddhist, agnostic, Jew, Muslim, Sikh, secular, humanist, every single person on this earth is religious to their core. Inasmuch as they held a belief or a non-belief about the world or their place in it and how to fix it. What, what is it that makes life good? And so even the person who says it doesn't matter what you believe, all that matters is that you speak your truth. Just speak your truth. Find it out. Go on a hike somewhere. Figure out who you really are. Speak your truth and just be happy. That person is also religious. Their, their doctrine is self-autonomy. Their, their God is happiness. Everyone is religious. But I want to focus on a specific kind of religiosity, the kind of religion that I grew up with, the kind that Ned Flanders from The Simpsons represents, which says this, that if I do the right things, whatever they may be, right, and we all have our different lists of what the right thing is, if I do the right thing, and if I believe the right thing, if I lead a moral life, then I will be enough and I will be justified. And it is so close to the truth, to the language that we may use in our churches that many of us, and I definitely was one, many of us get duped. And we believe that this is the way to the good life. Our boy, Kohelet, the preacher, will say a ton in the passage that Courtney read for us, but he will at least, which we're not going to discuss today, but we're at least going to look at two things. Number one is this, religion, being righteous, being good, Kohelet says that there is no real value to it because we're all going to die. Like, you're, you guys are sick of this by this point, this, right, this talking point. Like, yeah, this is good. Oh, well, you're going to die anyway. That's the first thing he says. And then he also says, even though God made us righteous, even though he made us upright, we don't even have the ability to do it. That's what he's going to say. So let's go back to verse 15 where he says this. In my vain life, like when you start off that way, right? In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's just not what you expect to read in Holy scripture. But if we remember that Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us uh, how to think and how to live by telling us how not to think and how to live rather than this kind of, kind of simplistic uh, the theology of tit for tat, right? Like this is not a formula. This is life. Except this one comes with a bit of a curveball because for Colette, who has quote unquote seen everything in his meaningless and vain life, it doesn't really get you anything to be too good. All right? that, that's what he's saying. This should shock us. This is scripture that's telling us, hey, calm down on the holiness. It doesn't really get you anything. Because in the end, just like the fool, you're going to die. Now, don't be too stupid either, right? Don't be too wicked because you don't want to die before your time. But really, in the end, it doesn't matter because death cancels everything. This is what he is saying here. Religion, being righteous, being good, leading a moral life has no value because we're all going to die anyway. 
But it's not only because of death. That's not the only reason why religion is vain, because back in, uh, at the end, verse 29, he says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Kohelet here is not trying to do what Adam did in the garden. If you remember with me that Eve is deceived and Adam is a coward and they both jump headlong into rebellion. And what happens when God approaches Adam, what does he do? He plays hot potato real quick with the blame. He says this. Uh, this is uh, uh, in Genesis 3. The man said to God, so God gets to Adam. He says, what have you done? And this is what Adam says. This is what our father, our first father says. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Right? And so Adam is questioned and he's like, listen, Linda, look, listen, 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 listen. The woman, the woman gave it to me. It's, it's her fault. And by the way, it's the woman you gave me, right? It's the woman you put, right? Like my rib, sure, sure. But it's the woman you put here. And what Adam is doing, he's saying he's taking no blame whatsoever for what he has done. And Eve is no better because she says this. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, it, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and, and I ate. And so, see, it's not really my fault. It's, it's the serpent. And in fact, like, if I'm deceived, you made me this way. Constantly passing the buck over and over again. Just like her man, Adam, she passes the buck. And for both of them and for many of us, the problem is external. It's always external. It's always something that someone has done to me. It's the serpent. It's God. It's someone else. And we continue to do this all the time. It's almost exclusively something outside of us. But that's for another sermon. But Kohelet here gets it right. He gets it right because even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? And he gets it right. He says it's not God's fault here. It's humanity. Humanity chooses to go after many schemes. And he says so clearly in verse 20 when he says, Surely there is not a righteous person, a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Religion is vain and meaningless and worthless because we can't completely and utterly be fully good no matter what lies we tell ourselves no matter what kind of lies we live we cannot do it there is fundamentally something broken within us and more, moreover moreover hypothetically even if we could be perfect like we're gonna die anyway so it doesn't even matter in the end and i'm like Kohelet, like i'm struggling with this book because I'm like, man, you're not leaving us with many choices here. We can't be quote-unquote bad, right? We can't quote-unquote be good. And let me just boil it down for you and bring it home. There is absolutely nothing, nothing that you can look to. There is absolutely nothing that you can do in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own knowledge. Whatever good you can find within yourself and in your heart, it all amounts to nothing. Our own goodness, our own morality, our own uprightness, our own righteousness, our own good deeds cannot, will not, could never amount to us achieving the good life. Let me speak Christian to y'all. All the quiet times and all the scripture memorization and all of the good deeds that we perform could never get God to affirm us and accept of us. Nothing. 
You can read scripture all you want. You can pray every single moment for the rest of your life. You can attend our Sunday gatherings and triplets and gospel communities. You can recycle if you want. You can never cut off anyone on King George's Road. You can never cuss again. You can never speak not one single bad word about one single other person. You can pay all of your bills on time. You can keep a tidy home. You can try to get your kids to obey you all of the time. You can feed the hungry, clothe the poor. You can plant churches, fight injustice and oppression. You can live a morally upright and perfect life. You can do all these things in your own strength in what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh and it will never make you enough. Never. If we ever think that it can, we have lost our way. And there's a word for you today. Surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, this is quite depressing. It's good news, though, isn't it? It's, it's depressing at first for a recovering religious person. But it is good news for sinners like me like you. It is good news for ragamuffins, for the beat up, for the broken, for the ones that cannot pull themselves up by their bootstraps. This is the truth that will set the world on fire. And this is what Paul says here. Now, if Paul, let, me, let, let, me Paul, let, let me let Paul speak. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in doing things, I have more, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The Apostle Paul, what he's doing here, he's laying out his resume. He's done everything right to be right. He has checked every single box imaginable. More than that, he was active in persecuting what he thought was this heretical Jewish sect called Christians. There was no holier holy man than Paul. He comes from the right stock. He's done all the right things. He is the epitome. He is the epitome of what would have looked like for someone to be religiously devout. First, he was circumcised on the eighth day according to Genesis 17, 12. So even, even before he was like he was, he was eight days old, right? He didn't decide, but he was even like righteous by what people have done to him, right? So like even where he isn't cognizant of what he is doing, he's saying, I, I've done it. I, I'm from the right stock. Second, he's of the people of Israel. He's not a convert to Judaism later in life. Third, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. I wonder why, what, what does that matter? Now, Benjamin was the second favorite son of Jacob from Rachel. And if you remember in the text, Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved. Leah was the wife that he just ended up with, right? And so he, he even comes from, like, lo, like he's a love child. He's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, Fourth, he's a Hebrew of Hebrew. He's creme de la creme. He was a professional Jewish man. Fifth, he was a Pharisee, right? This is who he was. He was the moral gatekeeper of the community. Sixth, 
He was a coat check at Stephen's murder. The first martyr of the church, he was coat checking people, like giving tickets. Like, I, like come back with your ticket. I'll give you a coat when you're done killing this dude because he's a Christian. Seventh and finally, he is righteous under the law. He's saying that there are all 613 laws in the Old Testament. He's saying, I have done every single one. Now, there is not one person in here who would have the gall to say this. And yet, we even fall into the trap of thinking that, that we can be enough. And if anybody, anybody could have carried, could have arrived at a meaningful life based on religious observance and activity, it would have been Paul, bar none, period, end of story, full stop. What does he say in verse 8? He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, Paul is not saying here that being circumcised on the eighth day is wrong, right? He's not, he's not saying that it is bad to be ethnically Jewish. He's not saying that it is wrong to be from the tribe of Benjamin. He's not saying that to be a Pharisee in and of itself is bad. In fact, there were Pharisees that ended, ended up following Jesus and probably remained as Pharisees. He's not saying that zeal for the Lord is wrong, albeit he went too far. He's not saying that to follow the 613 laws found in the Torah is wrong. Obedience is a beautiful thing. But as he compares all of that to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord, he feels like all of it is scubala. Yes, we are going there again. For those who missed out when we went through the book of Philippians, scubala is used only once in the New Testament, only one time, and it's, it's translated as refuge or rubbish, garbage, insignificant, dog dung, filth. And this is not, now, li, li, don't, what I, email the NET translation committee. Don't email me about this. The word translated dung was often used in Greek as a vulgar word for fecal matter. As such, it would have most likely have had a certain shock value for the readers. This may well be Paul's meaning here, especially since the context is about what the flesh produces. Scubula is not then the polite word that we read in all of our translations. It was meant to communicate the absolute stark difference, the, the offensiveness of us thinking that we can actually be good enough. J.I. Packer, he says this about the word scubala. He says, nastiness and decay are the constant elements of its meaning. It is a coarse, ugly, violent word implying worthlessness, uselessness, and repulsiveness. Now, I'm going to quote from an academic Christian book called Reordered Loves and Reordered Lives by a philosopher, a professor, and a Christian academic. He says this, one of the most salient features of our culture, writes philosopher Henry Frankfurt, is that there is so much bullshit. Yes, you read that right. There is so much bullshit in our culture. Now, please don't think me profane in quoting this or me quoting this. It's actually quite biblical. That word might be used in the most appropriate translation of Philippians 3.8. There, Paul refers to the natural and spiritual privileges of his culture that once served as the sources of meaning and purpose in his life as basically bullshit. 
And again, I don't mean to unnecessarily shock or offend you by reproducing this word that Paul uses in Philippians 3.8 in our vernacular English language. But I don't want us to simply understand in our heads of what it means to look to religion for our enoughness, to look to our performance for our enoughness, the vanity of religion. But I want you to feel the weight and the offense of doing so, the worthlessness of it, the uselessness of it, and the repulsive of it. When you go to Calmsley Hills Farm and you step on that pile of scubula, I, I, want you, like, I want you to understand this. This is what Paul is saying. Like I still have a fresh pair of kicks on the deck that I haven't cleaned yet from last time. You could just imagine, but you, you, you know the feeling. You don't even want to step in your car after stepping on something, right? Like that is what God understand our efforts to be good enough that's what it is scubala i want you to be more shocked by the fact that we all try to do this rather than the fact that i used a pg-13 word trying to attain the good life trying to become enough trying to be religious trying to be good in our own strength it's a failed project it is scubala and maybe you're here and it's finally dawning on you that you can't do this, that it is a failed project. Because when you're doing well, when you're performing well religiously, you feel so good about yourself and everyone else just isn't measuring up. And so you find yourself being angry and judgmental. And when you're not good enough and when you're stumbling forward, you find yourself depressed and anxious and even maybe suicidal. And so... It's not through sex or money or relationships or possessions or experiences. And now what's being taken from us, a religious community, is religion. So what is the good life? And while Kohelet is silent here, Paul is plenty clear that our enoughness, our justification, the good life isn't found in our religious performance, but at the end of it. When we finally realize that we could try to clean up our lives, that we could impress folks with our religious devotion, with our own goodness, with our own spiritual achievements, with our own self-made righteousness, when we finally realize that to build a life on our religious performance is scubala, then and only then can we find the answer to the question, what is the good life? It's not found in our performance. It's not found in our heritage. It's not found in our possessions. It's not found in who we marry. It's not found in the number of commas in our bank accounts. It's not found in how many stamps you can get on your passport at the end of your life. It's not found in your postcode or your denomination. It's not found anywhere, actually. But let me tell you, it can be received. The good life can be received. Again, Paul, he says, indeed, I count all things, everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as scubala in order that I may gain Christ and be what? Found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, being found in him. If we want, at the end of, of, of Ecclesiastes, if we want the answer to what is the good life, let me say it very, very clearly, that the good life consists in being found in him.
and we have that. And yet, our hearts forget that. Our hearts don't believe that. And so we search for other things. The good life, if you really want to know what the good life is, if you really want to get underneath all of the scubula inside the church and outside of it in our culture, if you want to get behind it and underneath it, if you want to strip it all back, this is it. There's one thing. It's being found in him, that true joy and true life and true happiness and true flourishing is found in being found in him. And because, listen, because we are now found in him, we are gifted a righteousness. We're gifted a goodness. We're gifted our enoughness that doesn't depend on religiosity or our performance. It depends on faith. It depends on the faithfulness of Jesus, not our own. And see then, and then we are free. You get, you get that? You get that at that point, you are free. You are free from the expectations of whatever religious community you grew up in. You are free from our culture's expectation about what you need to look like or be like or where you need to live or how much money you need to have. You are free. Like, there's a freedom that so often, I feel like we're, we're, like, we're like elephants, right? Like, I, I don't know if this is true. I heard this is true, that you could, you could tie up an elephant and get it to remember that it's been tied up, and then you can take it away and put a string, and it'll, it won't walk away because it's been programmed to believe that it is tied up, and that's us. We are, we're actually free. And yet we choose to live in self-made prisons of other people's expectations and our expectations and our parents' expectations and all these religious expectations. And we are free. And yet we forget. And the thing is that we're not free uh, just to uh, get away from true righteousness, from living it out. But we're free to actually do it in joy. We're free to obey. And once we get the horse before the cart, once we put the horse in front of the cart. We don't look to any of those good things as the source, as the ground of our enoughness. We don't look to those things as the source of our justification. Once we understand just how much God is for us, when we begin to understand just how much God loves us because he loves us. And if you ask the question, why does he love us? The answer is because he loves you. And then you try to get to underneath that. You're like, okay, why? Because he loves you. And then you try to ask the question, okay, why? Because he loves you. And then we try to ask the question again and again and again. And you can dig and dig and dig and dig. And at rock bottom, if we can even get to the bottom of God's love, it is simply because he loves you. You see, basing our life and our hope on religiosity is us trying to build ourselves a tower that reaches the heavens so that we can be able to say that it's off the sweat of our brow. It's because of what we've done. It's because I am good enough, because I'm consistent enough in my habits, because I'm strong enough. But the gospel busts all that open and reminds us, sis, you're not enough. You're not strong enough, bro. Like that's just, that's, let's, let's just get there. But in the kingdom of God, our weakness is the currency of strength. We forget that. That in the kingdom of God, our weakness is the currency of strength. Because we have nothing and nothing within us that we can somehow muster up within ourselves to make ourselves enough, enough. But the gospel. 
the gospel, the good news that says, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were still dead in our transgressions and sin, God made us alive together with Christ. The good news that says, for while we were far off, God has brought us near through the blood of Christ. Religion will try to get you to believe the lie that you've got this. And if God can pitch in and get you started, great. But the gospel will tell you two things. I'm going to invite the band up. But the gospel will tell you two things. That humanity, use you, singular and plural, individuals and collectives, that we are way worse, more sick, more damaged, weaker, more inept, more evil, more incapable of saving ourselves than we have the courage to admit. That's the first thing the gospel will tell you. The second thing and the beautiful thing is that you are far more loved and far more cherished and far more wanted and far more liked and far more desired by God than you have the capacity to understand. Let me say it this way. We are both, we are both far more in trouble and in need of God than our pride allows us to admit. And we are far more loved and secured in Christ's love than our shame allows us to feel. You are far more in trouble, and yet you are far more loved. And so, religion is vain, worthless, useless, scubala. All is scubala compared to the surprising worth of knowing Christ Jesus the King. And maybe, maybe you're here and maybe you're realizing this is, this is what I'm feeling. I've been going off my own steam. Maybe somewhere along the way you have tried to prove yourself by being good. And consequently and paradoxically, the more we try to be good in our own strength, the worse we become. And when we realize that we are accepted just as we are, and you begin to accept what God says about you, that he loves you, that he truly loves you, then we begin to become the kind of people we've been trying so hard on our own steam to become. This is, this is my story, a story of trying too hard to prove myself how I can be good by my performance, by my own goodness. And if you decide, listen, if you are here or you're listening later on, if you decide to take the transformative journey of not only repenting of the bad things that we've done, but repenting of the good things we have done, repenting of thinking that anything we ever have done has curried favor with God in order for him to accept us, when you begin that journey, it is difficult. It is hard because you are looking at yourself maybe for the first time in a very long time with honesty and truth. And the beautiful thing is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not a lick. Not an ounce. Not an iota of condemnation. And so we are free to face ourselves. You're free to face your brokenness, your mistakes, your sin, because you're secure. I love you, and more importantly, Jesus loves you. And I want to pray this prayer over everyone here today and anyone listening from the book of Ephesians because so often when we think about what, what it means to grow in Christ, we, we, we think it, it means that we, we do more or, 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 or whatever it is. The way that we know that we are growing in Christ 
is our ability to receive the love of Christ. It's so interesting. Uh, the prayer that I'm going to pray from Ephesians 3, it's so interesting. Every single time, I've said this before, but every single time I read this prayer from the book of Ephesians, I'm expecting Paul to say something different because he starts off saying, I'm, I'm going to pray that you would have power, right? And what I think about power, power is to do something, right? Power is for us to get up and do something. We need power for that. And yet that's not what Paul says here. Let me tell you what Paul says here. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, so that, so that, through this, his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love and that you may have the strength, listen to this, to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We don't even have the natural ability to receive God's love for us. That even is a gift. And so my prayer for you today, for all of, our, all, all of the recovering religious folks, is that we would simply pray that we would have the power to comprehend the love that God has for us in Christ so that we may be, be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.